Hey everyone, CCR here. I just wanted to apologize in advance for the sound quality of some parts of this episode. Uh, we were having some problems with the website we use to record our uh, long-distance interviews. But with that said, I think we've got some really cool stuff this episode, some pretty important things to talk about. So definitely stick around and hope you guys enjoy it despite some of the sound issues we've got. Um, we're going to be taking Christmas off the one week a year that we don't record a podcast for you guys, so hopefully you're not too disappointed. But our week after that, we're going to do a mailbag episode. So please feel free to hit us up at at MTG underscore Grindcast on Twitter or wherever else you want to find me. Uh, send us any questions you've got for me and Collins about really anything, magic-related, life-related, whatever you got, and we would love to answer them on our holiday mailbag episode. So uh, with that said... Uh, sorry again for some of the sound problems this episode. I did what I could to fix them, but some of them were kind of tough. Um, but I hope that you enjoy it anyways. Thanks a lot for listening, and enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 74 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast to ever feature one Matt Nelson of the Mox Insights. Uh, what are you guys, a research team? What, what, uh, what teamworks, teamworks. Team okay, cool, cool. Yeah, so I'm here. I'm CCR. Collins is here. Hey, I'm, Collins. I'm Collins. Yep. <laughs> and Matt Nelson is also here. Hey, Matt. Howdy, everybody. How you doing? I don't think we should get too deep into stuff without explaining, like, who you are and, and what you're about. So sure. uh, why don't you just start off by telling us a little bit, you know, we, we asked you to come on here because you've been working on the Mox Insights project, which has uh, come up with some pretty interesting data over the past couple of weeks. But if you want to just sort of like pretend that I have no idea what it is and uh, let me know what, <laughs> what you guys are. Yeah. So like Chris said, uh, my name is Matt Nelson. I'm a magic player from like Eastern Washington right now. And, um, I sort of have been helping coordinate and uh, get a group going um, that we're intending to bring a lot of data-driven analytic work to Magic the Gathering and kind of bring MTG data stuff into the 21st century, which is where it needs to be. So um, yeah, we've done a couple pieces. And so I think we started, uh, I don't know if you want to go into the history right now or later, um, but that's kind of who I am and um, what we're trying to do. Uh, these kind of projects that you've been working on have been uh, a pretty big hit, I think, on in the Magic community over the past couple of big tournaments you've done it for. I think the, the latest one that you released was GP Portland and some other Ampries previous to that. And essentially, it's just a, a, a big data dump of essentially everything that you could extra extrapolate from from the, the Grand Prix, right? Yeah. So um, I take a lot of credit to uh, Joan uh, Garcia Esquerda. Um, he started doing this stuff in Europe for some of the European GPs. Um, and was posting his stuff in the game Discord, which is where I sort of got uh, connected with Joan. He had started doing a couple of those. I hadn't seen any for Atlanta, and um, I was qualified for the RPTQ in December. So I was like, let's. I, I, I want, like, selfishly to, like, know what the meta should look like, but also to start this whole project and, like, really help inform people better about what does the modern meta look like, especially because modern is so wide open and wild. So. Um, we started, um, I started a survey um, and reached out to him and he was very happy and excited to continue doing his stuff. So we partnered up 
and then I brought a few other people on since then. Uh, so, but like the first thing that we worked together on was GP Atlanta, and then we did another one on Portland. Um, so yeah, that's where we're at. That's awesome. So was this all kind of a, a like response to uh, Wizards push to reduce the amount of data that we have to work with? I wouldn't say response to. We've okay. Speaking personally, like I've always been a person that's favored more data than less. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think like the the most recent decision to have their uh, Moto algorithm, I think it was like a year ago. Like I never liked those decisions, uh, to be completely honest. But they are what they are, and so you know you take what you can get. But um, I'm also a Hearthstone player, and um, for anyone that's familiar or isn't, I guess. The, there's a group called Vicious Syndicate, and they publish like weekly meta reports that are based on people's tracking of like people playing Hearthstone, and they just have incredibly robust data sets of like twenty thousand, twenty five thousand games. Wow! And um, yeah, stuff that Magic players would like. Dream yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. That's just so far <laughs> removed from what like we have a list of decks that went five zero. Oh, right. Like... Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And so the, the advantage is that Vicious Syndicate is independent. So they're not like linked with Blizzard in any way. Um, as far as I can tell, Blizzard had, doesn't have any feel in one way or another. But they had a really great um, recent analysis about their metagame in Hearthstone where they talked about matchup polarity. And so they basically tracked over the course of like five or six expansions of Hearthstone where they could see like the gaps between decks, like matchup percentages was basically growing. So like... When you play Hearthstone, there might be matches that you play against that are literally, like, not exaggerating, like, 70-30 matchups, where the chances of you winning are just so low that's worth your time to just concede the matchup wow. and just hit okay. another ladder deck. That's interesting. And so they had this project, and I was like, this is really cool. We should be able to do this kind of work in Magic. And, like, we are so far away from the, the amount of data to, like, make that a reality, but we want to start doing that work. And, um, you know, you, you don't start anything... You know, by getting there at the end, you have to take like a single step or whatever that journey saying is. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like on my list of like questions to ask and things like the first one is what are your the, the goals of this project? So, I mean, you, you kind of talked about it a little bit, but where do you want to end up eventually? Uh, what, what do we want to be here and what kind of information do we ultimately want to have? Yeah, um, we've been talking and developing that amongst the team of people I've been working with. Some people would really love to have like a, a data base, like clearing of like. Think like the MTG Goldfish um, deck breakdown mm-hmm. stuff, but on steroids. So links to like people playing decks on coverage, streams, things like that. I, w- I want us to start like moving incrementally. Long term, I would love for us to be the vicious syndicate of Magic. I want us to be a place where people go to for meta reports and analysis, and um, can build from there. Uh, Brian Gottlieb uh, interviewed me for a, 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 a article he posted on Star City, and. One of the things I talked about there was how um, I want people, I think particularly in modern, um, to be able to tune their sideboards and be prepared uh, for whatever's happening and evolving in the meta. You know, people can't really like buy in and out of decks very quickly. They can do it online, which makes the modern Moto meta game really interesting. But you can't do it in paper. I can't just like take my deck of Jun, sell it, and then like buy into Spirits and not take like a pretty big loss and i can't do it the next week if spirits is bad and then buy into ad nauseum so um i want people to be able to help understand where the meta is moving where it's going i think like the results from atlanta are actually really indicative of that because we saw a moto uh i think it was a challenge or ptq where 
a bunch of blue-white decks were successful, whereas the results we looked at from Atlanta said that blue-white was very bad. And my hypothesis was that the, the decks online main deck rest in peace. And they were like, we're going to beat Dredge. That's what we're here for. That's the worst matchup. And we can't rely on drawing rest in peace post-board to get to where we need to go. Um, we have to be able to deal with them game one. And that's why those decks are to the top. And so I, I don't know if that's actually true. That's my hypothesis. I want to get more data so we can like start to explore those things more meaningfully. Right. And the more data you have, the more possible it is to make a choice like, I'm just going to put these rest in pieces in my main deck this weekend because everybody is KCI or Dredge. Like, yes, yeah. exactly. Cool. Um, so who is on your team right now? I know you listed them at the end, but like what, you know, who's who's working with you and what sort of roles are they fulfilling at the moment? Yeah, so um, there's me, uh, a friend of mine, Jacob Birch. Uh, he's working on developing sort of a web page for us and sort of doing web coding and uh, helping set up like the links for what we're trying to do. Joan is one of our data people. Cat Light, which you guys probably know, um, she's hopped in our Discord, and um, I know she's busy with the move and stuff like that, so not super active yet, but she's going to be one of our data scientist people. And then Jared Lunsford um, did a recent uh, research piece on, I think it was Pro Tour Guilds of Ravnica, um, where he was looking at metagame breakdowns too, and so um, those are the five of us right now, and we're, we'll build in the future as we need it, but right now, so it's like three data scientists... Uh, me, who is the data layman, I'm trying to learn from that, and then uh, uh, Jacob as the web person. That's that's really awesome. I mean, having people who I, I one of the other questions I had here is like, what is your statistics and data background? But it sounds like you've got all of that covered pretty well. Um, I I would encourage you to uh, make use of Cat's ability to draw attention to things via magic social media. Uh, she's very good at that sort of thing. Yeah, she's interested in working on GP Cleveland. So um, that'll be another one of our uh, posts in the future. Um, right now we're focused on, I think, GP Oakland's going to be the next one. And um, frankly, we'd like to start doing the SCG tour sometime I'm, I'm soon. I'm sure that you'll so, have plenty of help with that. Yeah, absolutely. Just like covering the whole between breadth, Yeah, um, between Cat and, and access to yeah. Lotus Box's resources, then yeah, we, we're, we're definitely going to be able to hit SCGs pretty well, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, I noticed that the response rate for GP Portland was a little bit disappointing. Um, can you talk about like what what happened there between that and and GP Atlanta? Like what's going on with your your response rate? I honestly don't know. Um, the the funny thing is like I was at Portland because I'm from the area and um, I was handing out slips of paper with like the links to the survey. Um, I was talking about the project with every opponent I had. Uh, I had numerous friends from like my local player group and the people mm -hmm. I was staying with like distributing these like little slips of paper everywhere, um, and we started a Twitter account right before that. So like in terms of our actual advertising, we were much much bigger for Portland than we were for um, Atlanta. I think the main difference is that um, there wasn't a coverage team at GP Portland because so, so the data that we pull from is three different parts. One is a player survey that we post on social media and reach out to people to find. The other one is um, uh, the top 16 or top 32. And the third piece is coverage. So if like we see someone on coverage, we can say so-and-so is on Mono Red Phoenix. Um, you know, time lock matches, like those are huge. And then what we do is once we've collected all that data, you kind of build a, a metagame matrix using the pairings and results. So we can know that, you know, Boggles won round one in the hands of, say, um, you know, Joe Smith. 
And we know then for the rest of the tournament that Joe Smith's uh, results are all based around a Boggles player. And if Joe Smith filled out our survey, he would have an opportunity to say, I played against Burn on round two. And then we can go, okay, so who'd you play in round two? Well, I was so-and-so. They were on Burn. And then build up that matrix from there. So Portland had um, only had no visual coverage and only had top 16. And that's actually a pretty huge margin that you lose out in terms of like the web that we would build out of pairings and then therefore metagame matchups. So like in terms of promotion, we were like way higher for Portland and this was still like the best we got. So, and it's okay. If this is a growing experience, like I was hopeful that we'd be able to build more, but you know, not everything is going to be, you know, as, as we know from magic, being magic players, not everything is like two steps forward. Sometimes you have to take step backs and then continue to build on your yeah. success. Yeah. And I mean, the goal here is to identify basically every single player's deck in the tournament and every pairing that they have. So like we know every single time that Boggles played Jund and then what the results were from each of those matches, right? Like that's the like end game goal for a perfectly reported tournament. Right. Yeah. I, I this is Absolutely. just a, a, you know, a hypothesis, but I, I, I think another factor do of, uh, you know, number of entries that the the system received on Portland might also be due to the fact that uh, earlier you guys had kind of gone viral, right? There was a big topic on Twitter. Um, yeah. For an event that was also pretty heavily publicized, um, and I think that that could have spoke for the yep. initial huge influx of, um, you know, responses to your surveys. So maintaining that, I think, is going to be difficult. And you're definitely going to see a dip just kind of based on the trends of uh, things that go viral. But I, you know, I would assume that this is such a strong idea that it's going to pick up pace from here as well. And, you know, as long as you could keep on at it with the social media push, then you can you can definitely get back to where you have been. And, and we are we were up in terms of actual survey results. So like that, that was good. That, that improved over the course of Atlanta. Like we didn't have as many sur- like uh, direct survey responses for Atlanta as we did for Portland. So, so, so it was really that like top 16 versus top 32 being reported that, that just yeah. hurt you so much. And if you, I guess if you look, that's huge. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. You don't realize how big it is until it happens. And then I would also assume that if, if one of the, if the Grand Prix is, has a feature match, then that's also, you know, 15 plus or i guess 32 plus names that you can just add on to for each round of covers that they have yeah every time walk match is like a little piece of gold that just like drops in your palm like yes that's two more matches that we can build from (laughs) that's that's awesome right and so like you don't need anywhere near like 100 percent survey response rate to get an almost perfect view of the tournament like each additional like each additional report gives you just a huge amount of data. Yeah. If people remember their pairings. And so that's the thing is mm-hmm. um, if anyone this wants to contribute to this project in the future for an event, like a competitive REL event that you're going to just write down what you're playing against, uh, because that will help us build this matrix from all the stuff. Like someone just reporting their, uh, they, what they played alone is great. And that's super helpful. But if someone can also track, you know, I played, uh, you know, Boggles in, you know, round three, I played Jund round four, I played Spirits in round five, and so on. That helps us build so much more. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be really cool to get this to a place like whenever I go play a competitive REL tournament, like part of my tournament is right afterwards going and logging in the, the that information. Like that would be a pretty cool yeah. thing to make the normal like activity, I guess. 
Yeah, and we're trying to figure out ways to remind people about that or like to publicize it. You know, like either some kind of listserv or like some kind of newsletter that's like, hey, don't forget to, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, I think we run into challenges as we consider like internationally, like Joan brought up um, some of the European like privacy laws. And so if we're storing people's email addresses, we have to, you know, do certain international standards. Oh, interesting. So um, I'm learning a lot. Yeah, yeah, I'm learning a lot as we're developing this and want to go forward with it. But that's part of the process of all this. I don't want, as a person that's trying to help coordinate it and um, get it to a place where it's a really robust, I want to make sure that we're making the right steps forward. And that's very mindful and thoughtful about how we're doing that. Like how we share data, you know, do we share the exact spreadsheet of people's results? Like, cause we can't, we have that and we have done that in the past. Um, do we want to continue doing that practice? I don't know. I think it's a question to kind of ask ourselves and be like, what do people need to know? Like, Vicious Syndicate's data is so robust and so huge that, like, no one cares if, you know, Zile was, like, put, like his actual matchups, you know, for the week that he posted. Yeah. Um, so, I guess you're trying to anticipate a concern about pe- individuals saying that they don't want their results posted on your on your system? Yeah, yeah. And also, like, I, I want a big part of this data to project is I want it to be public and free. So like we know like that when people do like pro tour testing or things like that that they do individual tracking of their matchups right. things like that like that's not like a, a big secret, but I want everyone to have access to this data and everyone to have access to it freely. You know we might eventually start a Patreon for people to support that work or you know have ads on websites, but um, I want this to be an equalizer in the Magic community. Um, I want someone who has their one burn deck you know for the week and they're going to go to a GP that's like right on the corner. And I want them to the best shot to spike it and do well because they know, okay, so Dredge did very well this past weekend. I need to be prepared for, I need to have three rest in peace this weekend, maybe instead of two. And everyone should benefit from that data, not just people that have like the time or effort to do that. Like I want to support the entire Magic community. Yeah, there's a fine line to be walked with like how much information. My, my gut is definitely like strip names from any of the data that you're putting out there. It, it seems like outside of the scope of this project for it to be something I have to check before every pairing to see like if my opponent plays the same deck in every tournament that's been logged or something like that. Yeah. Well, and if you, and you as a person, like I want you, you know, Chris Kasharapel to like trust me and trust the Mox Insights to like protect your data and that you share it with us in the spirit of, I know these people are not going to abuse this information or, you know, like leak it to, uh, you know, someone right before a pro tour, like if someone like goes to a GP and plays modern and the pro tour is modern, you know, I don't want people to be like, Oh, I don't know if like this stuff's going to get yeah, published. So I'm yeah. going to lose an edge that I might've been working on this like really sweet ad Nostack, you know, it sounds like you guys are being pretty thoughtful about it. So I, I appreciate that as far as like getting, getting word out and stuff. Um, I mean, we certainly would help as much as we can. I, I think I, I promised to make sure to retweet you, but I probably screwed that up. So uh, I think I know I missed at least one or two of the like advance in advance of Portland tweets. So maybe just like in a comment okay. at me or something, so that I can <laughs> so I can keep my word here. <laughs> no, I'll keep it in mind. No, it's like just this is a learning process, and so like I want to approach it you know the same way that we approach learning in magic. You know, there's going to be mistakes. There's going to be things we do that aren't as successful, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep trying those things or that we made the wrong decision maybe just didn't do something well enough so maybe not enough, you know social media advertiser things like that so yeah but back to like the the actual like data analysis and stuff and we're going to get to portland uh in just a second 
uh, for anybody who that is the main reason that you've tuned in. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so what are the like, like sort of tools and methods of, of analysis that you guys are applying right now? And then like, where are you going to go from there? So right now, um, Jonah's the one that's been, he, he sort of developed his scripts that he works on over the course of um, those European GPs and what he was pulling from. So um, basically what we're doing is we're just trying to figure out matchup pairings um, and sort of track. If you've, see, if you've seen some of the graphs that we've done, it's sort of like a, a predicting of like, what are the decks? What I really love about the way that Joan um, plots the data is you can kind of see like, usually there's a deck. If you look at the X and Y axis to get back to like mm-hmm. middle school or high school math, um, there's like this data point of like... Um, popular deck that does reasonably well like plus 50 percent um that deck to me is always interesting um because the deck that survived a lot of hate so like for atlanta that was humans like humans did pretty well for how popular it was um for portland it was like tron and um so like that's one of the things that we do is sort of look at like just plotting like how popular deck is versus how uh, much was played the overall win rate of certain decks in the tournament so like KCI from Atlanta was very high. It was like close to 60%. And then um, recently we also talked about adding ELO stuff because as we'll talk about in Portland, there's some really interesting results in terms of what you might anticipate from the meta or for the metagame report. Um, and then just looking at overall like sort of um, win rates of particular decks versus the entire format versus win rates of um, win rates of like decks versus each other. So like we know that Jund did very well against Infect. Uh, which isn't surprising, but you know now we know that for sure via data, and so that's where we started doing um, for this set for GP Portland. We looked at some of the MTG Elo data, and so one of the hypotheses that I have as a result of looking at that, and after Joan did some plotting of, you know, who was playing what decks, um, for the first time KCI really had a very wide range. So not to say that like the Elo project is like a perfect predictor of someone's skill, but it can say something. And so I, I think this speaks to sort of like the dearth of data in Magic in general, like just more of it, any of it would help. But um, so KCI has a really, really wide um, range of people playing it, as you can see from like the data we had there. It's so like around like 1500 to all the way up to, you know, like 1850. Yeah. Um, and then people love that, you know, Matt Nass, people like that. And so one of the reasons our, our hypothesis is, was that after the BNR announcement and you know nothing from KCI was banned, a whole bunch of people were like, okay, now is the time. Let's do KCI things. Um, and picked up the deck for the first time, took it to their like first major event, and didn't do very well with it. We're just kind of speaking specifically on the KCI thoughts that you had. Uh, that's pretty much exactly what I did <laughs> is at the Invitational. <laughs> um, and then this previous weekend at the IQ, I, I played KCI. And the Invitational was the first tournament that I had played KCI in. Um, and it was around the same time of, uh, yep. you know, yeah, so this, it's, I see that they haven't banned this deck. I might as well put in a lot of reps with it. Uh, another factor for KCI was our friend Lee McLeod had this big uh, primer that went out, and that could have also influenced a lot more yep. people to play it. But I don't know, just some more thoughts. No, I totally think that was a factor. Uh, Lee's guide was great. Um, I told him this, like, if, if y'all as a listener haven't, looked at it yet i highly recommend you check it out it is not only really helpful and informative but it's visually and aesthetically pleasing um i haven't seen a guy that <laughs> yes, good. <yeah. laughs> right i haven't seen the guy that good since brad rutherford um he's a seattle player put together a um 
uh, collected company, like back when like it was like Anafenza and like Kitchen oh, Sinks, yeah. Mr. C okay. combo. Mm-hmm. He put together one of the first guides I've ever seen that was just a really, really well done project. And Lee's is uh, excellent. So. Yeah, Lee's is phenomenal. The the hyperlinked table of contents where you can be yep. able, you can scroll down to the table of contents and say, okay, loops, how to do loops, and click on like each individual loop. And it just takes you there. I was like, wow. So that's a good is, touch. This is next level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was very well done. Uh, the other one that I thought was really interesting was Bant Spirits. Which, from listening to like pro points and you know reading a lot of articles, uh, people also seem to be really interested in the Bant Spirits train, um, and it was the most popular deck of the tournament actually it, uh, for the first time I think in uh, the entire like since the summer. And Jones started doing his work uh, the first time that humans wasn't the most dominant deck in terms of like um, actual player number registered humans for the tournament. Um, it was Bant Spirits. And so as a result, I think Bant Spirits mm-hmm. win rate also went down because you had a lot of people picking up the deck for, you know, for a second time. And um, it was very, like, people were prepared for Bant Spirits. They knew what it was about. And I think Modern in particular is a format where you can really benefit from there being an information asymmetry of, I know what my deck's doing. You don't know what my deck is doing. Like, I think Amulet Titan players and KCI players in particular have gotten really a lot of uh, win percentage points from just that asymmetry. I think KCI players are starting to feel that people know how to play yeah. against KCI. Yeah, now. that's definitely fair. There's there's a lot more information out there. And also, just kind of speaking on the popularity of decks influencing um, the win percentage of decks, uh, I think that as the popularity of a deck in a particular tournament grows, the win percentage of that deck is going to tend towards 50% kind of no matter what. Um, so that, you know, that's definitely something yeah. to keep an eye on for sure. Because if a deck it makes up a higher percentage of the field, it just doesn't have the ability to have a higher win percentage because not that many players can have a high win percentage in these tournaments based on the structure. Absolutely. I think that also, like, you raise a really great point that I would encourage people to kind of think about as they're reading, you know, the work that we're doing and just thinking about data stuff in general, that um, this isn't like finding about the we're not trying to solve the format we're not trying to find the best deck for you know modern forever and maybe the maybe the data we do eventually shows that there is a best deck and um there needs to be action taken against it but we're trying to help you like learn like what is what happened at this tournament where's the meta moving um and where do i need to be prepared as a magic player for my next you know competitive REL yeah that makes a lot of sense that's a really good point yeah, and, and we're we're now moving into kind of more specific uh, GP Portland stuff. But like one last general question that I wanted to ask you about uh, before we like really get into the specifics was what are the plans for, are, are there plans for looking at more like longitudinal data? Because like, you know, one tournament where blue-white control has a 42% win rate, like doesn't mean that much to me, but it getting for 42%-ish win rate for like several tournaments in a row starts to mean a lot to me. And then also with decks that like change over time, like I'm really interested in seeing like, okay, KCI has a really good weekend. What does that mean for the next weekend? And then how can I use that? Like when I see KCI have a really good weekend in the future, how does that help me interpret like what I should do based on that information? So are there plans for that sort of thing going forward? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things we're looking at, at least for modern, I think, is to kind of break it up into um, expansion formats. Mm-hmm. So, like, Guilds of Ravnica Modern, I think, has been defined a little bit by the addition of Creeping Shield of the Dredge deck. Like, that has influenced so much of the meta 
Um, it's made like Bant Spirits look really great um, because Bant Spirits can play Rest in Peace in the sideboard. KCI has also been a thing that's grown and sort of like really cemented itself in the weeks before. Like before, it's just like a Matt Nass like pet deck, and now everyone's like, this is a real thing, and I can learn how to play it myself. So yeah, there's plans for longitudinal stuff. Um, I would love for us to get to the point where we can kind of track even the performance of a deck over a tournament, like the performance of an archetype. So we can look at like, you know, because I think there's something interesting that happens, you know, when you have like round one, round two, uh, round three is when like Mm -hmm. everyone that has like two buys, what are the two by players playing? Um, What are the three by players playing that weekend? Um, And to be able to track the course of a deck over a tournament even. Um, that would require a lot more data, so it's kind of a, you know, when we get there, maybe something to think about. Um, but in terms of like longitudinal from like over the course of several months, definitely, it's just like we're still building a foundation to actually do that work. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you brought up that that other point about um, like you know timeframes in the tournament affecting the win percentage of decks because the concept of having a good day one deck and a good day two deck is something that we talk about a lot actually is you know um this is this is a little more applicable to team tournaments right because you're usually in individual tournaments you're you're looking at the tournament from more of a holistic perspective right so you know you you need your deck to be good both on day one and day two but in team tournaments in particular uh understanding a trend of this deck is going to be carrying us in day two, but day one, the matchup variance is going to be larger. So, you know, it's less likely to be successful in that context, but day two, it's going to be really powerful. And I've built like team setups based on those concepts before um, where, you know, we have one player who's expected to not do as well in day one, but then really be able to carry day two. And that, you know, that just gives us elements of, I guess, metagaming, but it's, I guess it's more of like a, utilizing the team format a little bit but um but yeah i think that i think that that concept of decks doing well either in the beginning or the end of tournaments is is something that i would be really excited to look at data for yeah like i happen to know personally the two players that were in the top two of like gp portland and one of them was playing like black green mid-range another one was playing grixis shadow i don't think the tournament is the story of those decks when i look at like some of the larger percentages uh, one of them is Blue Red Phoenix, and then the deck that actually fares very well against Blue Red Phoenix, surprisingly, was Tron. And so, like, Tron didn't quite get there to, like, have, like, a huge percentage in the top 16, but I think Tron was doing very well against what was happening day two. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess we should just talk about this Blue Red Phoenix deck a little bit, because <laughs> just kind of in general for our own, you know, keeping up with modern, uh, this Blue Red Phoenix deck is... It looks like it's the next big thing. It's it's very good. It's yeah. it's certainly exploded over the past couple of weeks. A ton of a ton of people are playing it. A ton of people I respect their decisions of are playing it. Um, Chris has adopted uh, Phoenix. Uh, Dylan has Dylan Donigan has adopted Phoenix. A bunch of people are adopting it, and it looks like your data from TP Portland really illustrated that it is a significant powerhouse in modern right now. Yeah. Well, I think the thing to think about, and maybe if you want to talk about longitudinal stuff, is that in modern right now, based on the two tournaments that we've done, and I think even going back to some of the stuff that Joan did from the summer, tribal decks are kind of like this foundation for modern right now. Like, that's just the way modern has evolved. And so, like, Bant Spirits and Humans combined compromise usually about 14, 15% of the metagame. So, like, of all the decks that you can trust that you're going to face, 
you're going to face at least one tribal deck per yeah. GP. Just guarantee, like, statistically, you should face at least one tribal deck. And those decks also do, like, fairly well. Most humans and spirits players, like, are above that 50% just a little bit. Like, it gives you a fighter's chance against the field. And Blue Red Phoenix attacks those decks so well. Just by, like, Thing of the Ice. And then you are allowed to leverage this real big, like, tempo advantage when you bounce something. And, and Modern is so tempo-oriented. I don't know how other people play Advanced Spirits, but I play it as a very tempo-oriented deck where I use Reflector Mages and Quellers yeah, to yeah. counter play and then start putting pressure on my opponent and kind of Abyssum, like you used to do with like Grixis Shadow. And I think uh, Is It Drakes is doing that really well. Um, is It Drakes came out of the came out of the gates for like GP Portland. I think it also is like as fast as the format is. And that's sometimes a problem with like newer decks as they get refined is they're modern is like a turn 3.5 turn four format that's how it's always been and you need to be fast enough to compete with that turn three for phoenixes i'm going to bounce your board i'm going to flip my thing in the ice and I'm, I'm having at least one maybe two phoenixes attack you that's such a huge tempo swing in modern that people just aren't ready for it and backed up by the fact that they're just dead next turn after you flipped a thing in the ice yep. like chris how many times have you flipped a thing in the ice and the game has progressed if you hit them with a thing in the ice yeah. like even if the game then goes on for many turns like that damage means that you're like have you're almost guaranteed to win the game if you hit them with the thing in the ice you're gonna get there eventually right um you're playing downhill and they have to get they have to like fight back against you yeah. um so yeah phoenix did very very well this tournament um, one of the other things, you know, like we're, we still want to talk about this data, but just since we're, we're on the topic of Phoenix, like one of the things that Phoenix really has going for it is that uh, Blue in Modern has access to a very powerful suite of targeted counterspells. And there's just no deck that I want to play those counterspells in. And finally, there's, I mean, like seriously, like I don't want to play Blue White. I don't want to play Jeskai. I, uh, there's just no options for it um finally here is an assertive deck that can lay down a clock game one that's really good at dealing with creatures on the board game one and then game two and three you have access to whatever configuration of ceremonious rejections disdainful strokes uh spell pierces just like these super cheap very very powerful counter spells that oftentimes in game two and three you only need to cast one and that's enough to buy you the time to kill them with your stuff um, and no other deck in the format that I would deem like particularly playable is able to run these counter spells. So that's a really big deal to me. Yeah, I've heard this deck referred to as the new Delver. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels a lot like it, yeah. Where, except for your Delvers are free. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're skipping your first turn with the deck most of the time. Like best case, you're casting yeah. a Serum Vision. Right, right, right. So sure. it, it's it's really similar to Delver, but yeah, like the Delvers don't really cost you a card mm-hmm. like you're you kind of down a card from faithless student yeah but like it actually works and like the card Delver of secrets doesn't work in modern because we don't have brainstorm and ponder yeah, so yeah, yeah. um you know this is what we've got and it, it works pretty well yeah no it's blue red phoenix has really impressed me i think that it has um like players are finding the like you mentioned chris the counterspell sideboard um and trying to figure that out because i think mm-hmm. that was where early iterations of phoenix were a little bit weaker I think uh, the last week or two weeks ago, you and Collins were talking about adding Jace to the deck, um, just like shorting up that two drop slot so that you are curving out and doing things yeah. like all the way in those first critical, you know, three turns of modern. So yeah, yeah, and I 
I tried Jace uh, a little bit. I've tried it online. Uh, and it's been fine. I tried it at the IQ uh, this weekend. I played not great at the IQ this weekend. Uh, the, the losses I got were completely <laughs> my fault. The, this, by the way, Collins won that IQ. So just <laughs> just so everybody knows that that happened. Yeah, Grand Grand Castle representing at yeah. the IQ. Yeah. yeah, took it down. But I, <laughs> I I gave Collins my energy because I I wasn't making use of it on Sunday. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, so so I, I don't know if like base is the answer there, but it, it is it fits into that pattern of the deck where you really want to play something on turn two and then untap with it, capitalize on it. And Jace just makes it that much more likely that you're digging towards multiple Phoenixes. Uh, bouncing their board is just better than that, though. But yeah, you know. <laughs> it, it, you know, we've talked about how we could if we could play eight thing in the ices, we probably yeah. would. But we just we just no no other card like that. Yep. Maybe what about just what about just Tarmogoyf? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean the number with thing in the ice. Yeah, was the problem. that's one of the problems. Like, yeah, you know, I, I've talked about how the problem with Monastery Swift Spear in the deck is that the cards in your deck are built around like not caring what creatures they have to block with, because uh, Phoenix has flying thing bounces all their stuff and only needs to get one hit in. Uh, as soon as you put Monastery Swift Spear into the mix, then like any creature on the side of the board, like KCI just like shrugs their shoulders and casts a scrap trawler to buy them some time. And like that's a problem for Monastery Swift Spear. Yeah. That's not really a problem for Tarmogoyf, but we've seen time and time again that like Tarmogoyf just isn't that fast. And yeah, 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 for sure. Bouncing for sure. your own Tarmogoyf is like the biggest disaster in the <laughs> yeah, world. That would be a definite nombo, so. You've tried Storm Chaser Mage, right? I haven't tried it, uh, just because, like, okay. playing out the scenarios in my head, it has never been, yeah, yeah. like, like doing the... <laughs> a 1-3 flyer, like, yeah, Yeah, just, like, doing the math in my head, like, it never... I got is... in for three this turn. <laughs> yeah. <Not> lucky. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, it, it, <laughs> it never quite makes sense, like, the mana investment compared yeah. to what it accomplishes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, being getting in for three yeah. occasionally with a Swiss Spear is really good, right? Because Swiss Spear only costs one mana, but if we're investing more... I, I, it feels like the power level is going to need to be greater than that. Yeah. But I don't know. Like, Thing in the Ice has yeah. seven power. Like, <laughs> right. We need to get, like, and it bounces close the board. <laughs> to that somehow, and nothing gets close to that. So, yeah. um, But clearly, the deck is still, still pretty good. Like, we see on this matchup data, to go back to the data, yeah. I mean, Blue Red Phoenix sitting there at a solid 6% metagame share with a 58% overall win rate, the highest win rate of any deck in the tournament. So, mm -hmm. very well positioned for this weekend, at least. Yeah, it crushed Band Spirits. Band Spirits just like got his teeth kicked in over and over and over again this weekend. Yeah, and I mean that's a good spot to be in is beating up on the best deck in the form, or not the best, but the 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 most popular deck in the format is, is definitely a good spot to be. Yeah, in. I also think Phoenix did. I'm, I'm looking at the data tier too. I think it also kind of preyed on some of the people that were hoping to um, prey on the um, the KCI players. Like, it not only was, like, good against, like, that level one, but also kind of hit some of the level two players as well. You know, it posted a good win rate against Grixis Shadow, at least positive. Posted a good, way, good uh, win rate against Infect. Um, like, those matchups are, like, things that you want to consider as, like, oh, this, like, it's good against other things, too. Um, and not so targeted. Whereas, like, uh, if you look at Dredge, Dredge actually did very well against Phoenix. But... Um, everyone's prepared to beat on Dredge with like Rest yeah. in Peace and all the other kind of stuff. So uh, Phoenix kind of like gets a pun intended soar over the competition. Yeah. yeah, I would say definitely that Dredge and Tron are probably two of the toughest matchups for the deck. Um, and I think you're, the, the data you have on those matchups kind of bears that out, right? Because uh, like 
Tron has those relics main deck and has, you know, if they resolve an Ugin or something, it can be very hard. Uh, That's why, like, my list, I went up to three Ceremonious Rejections in the sideboard just because there's always Tron. Yeah. Um, And also, KCI is probably a bad matchup for Phoenix. Right. Uh, Game one is borderline unwinnable Mm -hmm. uh, just because they are faster than you and your stuff doesn't really matter. Um, Lightning Bolt. Just (laughs) nice try is is what we think about lightning bolts. (laughs) Yeah. um, So so that was the thing is like I the only games that I had played with the deck before playing it in the cube qualifiers at uh, SCG Con was I just jammed it against Lee playing KCI, and then after a bunch of games, I thought. I think I want a third ceremonious rejection in this sideboard. And then I played against Tron like four times over the weekend. So, yeah, yeah. uh, it, but I just kept beating Tron, like losing game one a lot and then winning post board games because ceremonious rejection is really gross against Tron. Yeah. So, a huge tempo swing. And I think that's like really to me also shows the power of Thing in the Ice is that your counter magic package doesn't get bad. Mm-hmm. Like, because Thing in the Ice is still like yeah. allows you to. Pr- in a way, develop your board as you're countering spells. And that's so incredibly important in modern, just continue to be developing your game plan and doing something, even when it's your, not your turn. Right, right. A, a lot of third turn, like, even when I didn't have a thing in the ice on turn two, or if I, you know, was on the draw against Tron and they had two Tron pieces and I knew they were going to cast something on their third turn, uh, a lot of times, like, the turn two thing in the ice, hold up a one-mana counterspell is a very, you know, strong... Yep spot to be in so the the deck is a lot more maneuverable than the other blue decks that we've seen uh yeah. in modern so yeah just very impressive um but yeah if, if you want to beat it certainly like play tron like even mm-hmm. with extra sideboard cards tron is hard yeah yeah that makes sense i will say that there's interesting like divergence too so you might think that big mana strategies are good against spant spirits and they are but phoenix gets to like split the difference because it's great against titan shift but not good against tron uh, at least, you know, based on our matchup data. And so I think that's interesting how, like, Phoenix's introduction to the modern metagame. Because I think of modern as very ecological. Um, when Splinter Twin got banned, there's a whole bunch of, like, blue decks that were sort of, like, good predators on twin decks mm-hmm. that went away from the metagame. So, like, Grixis Control, um, some of the, like, Grixis Delver strategies, they kind of disappeared after Twin got banned because they didn't have a twin deck to kind of like police the format and something for them to prey upon. And so the introduction of Phoenix into the modern metagame, I think is going to shake things up a little bit, just like um, creeping chill uh, becoming a part of the dredge deck also shook up modern in terms of like blue white control is very dominant this summer. And um, now it's not very dominant at all. Yep. Yep. Makes sense. Um, Yeah. Creeping chill also a problem for Phoenix decks in general. Uh, yes. just that yes. extra turn that it buys uh makes it very hard like I, I i played against dredge a couple of times and it's just it's just really hard to keep up with that three three mana drain life uh your your phoenix is attacked for three but get kind of undone and then you just you get burned out and it's really hard to keep up even if they're not really attacking you with creatures so uh yeah tough matchup so what else have we noticed? You know, what's different? Did anything surprise you about this data uh, from GP Portland? Uh, anything jump out at you? Anything that, like, fit your expectations that you, you particularly want to comment on? Um, I think what stuck out to me the most, I think, in, you know, going back to the longitudinal discussion, is Infect still... Infect and Jeskai didn't do very well in our first Atlanta report, which I thought was surprising to me. Like, I thought Infect would have done better. Um, <laughs> and that's actually been consistent to this one as well 
you know, people keep talking about Infect as a good predator for KCI, but I think there might be just other predators that are better, and Infect itself uh, probably isn't the noble hierarch deck that you want to be playing right now. Um, and this this hurts me because I'm a I played Infect. Uh, I won a um, a PPTQ off it and played it in the RPTQ, and I love Infect. But um, right now, it's just not doing well in the metagame. And I don't know. Like that to me is a question of like maybe those like um, you know two buys, three buys systems are interesting. Like does all of a sudden like you know Infect. You know, if you play it, if you start playing Infect round three, is that going to be better for you than if you started playing Infect from the start of the tournament? Like, because you're playing against people that are like, well, I don't know what else deck I'm going to bring to a GP, so I'll just bring Burn. Infect gets paired against Burn, then it's like, this matchup is awful. Is that part of the problem? You know, I don't know. And so, like I said, more data uh, will provide better answers for that. Uh, Jund doing very well was very surprising to me. I don't know if that was like, you know, something about Bant Spirits that uh, Jun did well against. Um, I know that Jun, I'll go back to my data here, um, you know, Jun did post a good win rate against Bant Spirits, and, you know, Bant Spirits doesn't hit as hard as humans does, and Bant Spirits really hates seeing a Liliana, uh, either one, actually, across the table. Um, so, yeah, that's how I lost my winning in for day two in Portland, was just, like, Liliana's, like, both games, I was like, I cannot compete with Blast Hope and uh, of the Veil is taking me apart. So, uh, Jun doing well. I still don't think like these kind of mid range yeah. decks are a good choice for modern. They're not what I would play um, if I wanted to win a tournament because I think that you do need to be proactive, which again is why I like decks like Phoenix or KCI um, or even Hardened Scales. Um, they may not post the best win rates, but I think the proactivity of those decks is really powerful. Yeah, just being able to utilize the resource of your opponent's life total. Or even more broadly, your opponent threatening to make your opponent lose the game is is a huge resource that I think it just in general yeah. in Magic that if you're utilizing, you just get inherent percentage points based on that. So the proactivity, the, yeah, the proactive decks in Modern, you know, we've always kind of assumed that that was what you wanted to be doing in Modern, but I think that um, you know that just might just be like a general Magic philosophy that not everybody subscribes to. Yeah. I just don't think Modern has the space. So there's a concept, I think, in politics, talk like the Overton window of like acceptable political discourse. I like to think about that in Modern. And so like, what's the acceptable range for like an aggro or a combo deck in Modern or, or like a mid-range deck? And like, you know, when Black-Red aggro was a very dominant force in Standard, uh, I think last season, not this season, but last season, um, that sort of helped define like the meta poles of Standard. And so I think... Modern being this, you know, turn 3.4, 3.5, 4-turn format, it makes it so that like, there's a lesser range of viable strategies um, to, to kind of, like, sit around and not do anything. Um, you know, thought-seizing your opponent is uh, not always the best thing you can be doing in Modern, as weird as that sounds, because, like, one-for-one one trading may not be good for you. Yeah, thought-seizing the turn so, just doesn't win every time anymore. Like, not even close. You no, have to put in a lot of other work to, to win that game. Uh, whereas I think that it used it used to be in in, in modern where thought season Wave was a powerhouse. Yeah, the, the the scary start for me out of a lot of decks is when they thought season to Bob, and I mostly because like I'm often thinking about how when when I'm playing one of these very linear decks, which is what I play at modern, uh, <laughs> I'm thinking about how can I lose the game, and if they have a Bob, there's a lot of ways for me to lose the game because they can draw like two hate slash interactive cards a turn instead of one. Yeah. Um, but that that means that their Bob's 
like like their draws still need to be very good it's just scarier because it opens up that possibility that doesn't necessarily make it an actively good one too um I am definitely curious to see like how this number changes longitudinally going forward. Like, you know, John had a bad weekend in Atlanta and then it had a pretty good weekend in Portland and it might just be one of those sort of like hot and cold things that is, is hard to pin down and, and, you know, maybe we'll figure out how one day how to predict like when a good John weekend will be. And that will be good information to have. Yeah. Yeah. Might be the weekend to sleep for Tomorrow Guys. This is it. Time to time to get those. This is this, this is this one. The stars align. Uh, you know, Mercury's in retrograde. Jun right. is playable. Get that weekend in while you can. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Yep. Um uh is there anything else we want to talk about with this i I definitely want to give you a chance to tell us like how people can get in touch with you and then what you need people to do to sort of help out with this project but is there any other you know interesting data that we want to go over before we hit that and then we'll we'll talk about some of these spoilers if you want to stick around for that i would love to that'd be awesome um so yeah i guess we'll talk about uh what some of the things we can do to help so if you are listening um Please start the practice of just recording what decks you are playing against. Um, so, you know, if you're writing down those life totals on your on your notepad off the side of the game, you know, you see that turn one goblin guy, just write down burn because <laughs> um, that really helps us build these like webs of metagame matchups and percentages. Um, you can follow us at Mox Insights on Twitter. Um, we're going to be building a web page over um, you know the next coming month or month and a half or so and um, trying to develop a, a good archive. We've been posting our reports on Reddit, and I want to make it into a website that's a little bit more official that you can refer back to and um, that you can be able to track, you know, times, uh, you know, be able to look at Atlanta right next to Portland, right next to Oakland, all that kind of stuff. And GP, Oakland is your next uh, tournament that you're going to be doing this for? I believe so. I think that's early January. I think it's modern. I have to refer back to the GP schedule. But yeah, we definitely want to keep doing this practice and... Um, you know, developing our workflow in terms of how we're working together and, you know, me going into the spreadsheets and matching, you know, the uh, DCI names of people with their data and refining our collection instruments. So they're a little bit easier for us to mm-hmm. massage the data later on. Um, so, yeah, we have a, a, lot of, a lot of work to do in terms of developing where we're going, but um, just follow us at Mox Insights and I'll continue to try to develop our social media presence and share with your friends that we're trying to do this and, um, you can have a difference in, you can make a difference in helping develop like the magic modern, modern and hopefully standard someday metagame. And um, we can do, we can do more, we can do better. So that's our hope. And I bet, you know, it seems like if, even if we only got like, you know, 10% of a tournament to participate in this, as long as they're participating fully by, you know, also including their matchups round by round, it sounds like we would only need something like 10% of a tournament to participate to get yeah. like 99% coverage. Yeah. Yeah. If, if the, if the survey results were so widespread, it would be like, that would be enough. That's a hopeful long-term thing, but um, you know, we want to keep doing this work. We think it's important. We think it's really great. And I know people appreciate it too. And, you know, like I said, our intention isn't to solve metagames, which I don't, I think in a healthy environment, like you can't really solve a metagame. Like this standard has been incredible. I cannot talk highly enough about, I think, play design's impact on 
the the format of standard. Um, I, I, I like to think of this standard format as like a 75% answer format. Like you can only cover about 75% of what's going to happen across the table. And, you know, like one weekend you might play Ritual Soot, another weekend you might play Golden Demise. Um, we know that Golgari is a great deck, but decks are moving around to beat it. And just like it's it's so important, like the people that have had success with the standard format have been able to move from weekend to weekend in terms of refining their threats and changing what those are and answering this, you know, now it's time to play Playcrafter again in green black. Like this is so cool. And modern is wide enough that modern's meta can move as well. So let's learn from that and let's do more with it. And I think that the, that concept that you're talking about with this like dynamic fluidity of meta games in magic in general is kind of why I'm not really concerned about having a lot of data out there is because, you know, if everybody has access to this data, we're going to be able to move and adapt to, you know, whatever big presences come up from this data. Right. Um, So, yeah, Yeah. I mean, honestly, it makes me more excited and concerned about, about, you know, the, the, these metagames being able to evolve week to week. Well, to bring it back to Hearthstone too, when Vicious Syndicate did their analysis on metagame polarity, they offered insight into why it was the way it was. And it was like start of game effects that were impacting the entire duration of the game. It was um, just certain matchups and like certain resources that like certain decks would give you that just always trumped other decks. And so if we do start to see like that crystallization or that polarity start to emerge, okay, that, that tells us how to do things. I think um, of all the BNRs that came out over the past, you know, two years, the one I appreciated the most was the one that broke down um, like the mono red, like when they banned Rogue Refiner and Attune with Ether, and then also banned Rampaging Frostodon and Ramen Up Ruins. And I think it was Ian Duke who laid out this entire great yeah, uh, that was great yeah. analysis of like because they showed like like Red's win percentage against all the decks that weren't Teamer Energy and stuff like that. Yeah, yes, exactly, and that's so good. And I want. I want that to be the standard for like how we hear about decisions mm-hmm. from wizards, but also Definitely. how like, we yeah, talk absolutely. about things as magic players. Cool. Well then, yeah, I encourage everybody to go follow Mox Insights on Twitter. And if you're playing in a GP, especially a modern GP for right now, and then hopefully in the future, all the GPs and yeah. SCG opens, yeah. keep track yeah. of what you're playing, what you play against, and get that information in so we can start building better pictures of these metas, because that would be awesome. All right, so we definitely want to hit up some of these Ravnica Allegiance. Is that what the the new set is called? These are the spoilers for? That's what it's called, right? Ravnica Allegiance? I think so. Yeah. I, I also Allegiances. So, I'm also wait, wait. sure. Ravnica Allegiance. Okay. That's what it's called. That's yeah. what Google is autofilling in for me, so okay. I'm going to trust. Um, so we got a couple of spoilers. Uh, some of them I think we aren't really supposed to have, but they got sort of leaked out from some store owner who got their like game day promos or whatever these are uh, a little got a little too uh loose with them but they got some interesting stuff so we got a couple of hate bears to start out with uh first we've got lavinia azorius renegade which is white and a blue for a 2-2 legendary creature human soldier human human (laughs) uh each opponent (laughs) each opponent can't cast non-creature spells with converted mana cost greater than the number of lands that player controls and whenever an opponent casts a spell if no mana was spent to cast it counter that spell yeah so so the first thing this 
creature taught me was that any hate bear that has the human subtext gets Twitter ablaze. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't really matter what that hate bear does or if it's good or not. If it's a human and it's two two mana, everybody gets super excited about it. Um, and this one, it's worth considering every of time. Of course, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think this one was also worth considering because it does have a lot of implications in modern. Uh, there are a lot of cards that it shuts out. Uh, Mox Opal comes to mind. The uh, Terminus comes to mind. Any you Planeswalker know. that Tron is casting. Uh, right. Tron comes to mind just in general. Um, uh, so, you know, it does it does have applications. Uh, my concern for this, though, is that it just... It, the card is too narrow. And it's doing something that Gadakteeg does, but it's doing that thing worse. It's, it's not a perfect comparison because uh, this card is a human... And Galactique is not, so there's a little bit of a difficulty casting Galactique. Um, but in terms of the effect on the game and the range of things that those cards impact, I think Galactique has this card beat by a significant margin. So, yeah, my concern with this card is that it's too narrow. Uh, I don't think that it would be worth the sideboard slot in humans. But it is kind of cool to see more options for, for that deck. And just to like rattle this off, uh, Sam posted in our chat and saved me the work of like listing off everything that this stops. <laughs> oh, but, okay. you know, uh, in very old formats, this stops things like Moxes. It stops uh, Phyrexian mana stuff. It stops, you know, mental misstep and yeah. whatever. Uh, it stops Force of Will. It stops anything that was suspended. So it stops Ancestral Vision. It stops you from cascading into anything. Okay. Uh, so it stops Living End for whatever that is worth. Yeah. Uh, I don't think this is a good <laughs> card against Bloodbraid Elf, but yeah. uh, it does stop Bloodbraid Elf. And it, it stops you from casting, like, I don't know, like a turn three collected company, but it also <laughs> stops, like, most Chords of Calling. So that's kind of interesting. Thing, for yeah. sure. So it's like a weird, wide range of stuff. But the more, you know, every time I picture this, it's like I can put it into play against a deck and one of the powerful things that they might be planning on doing gets turned off. Yeah. But if they have their other powerful thing, it that's nothing. still yeah. going to be fine. Right. Like Tron is still going to just cast an Ulamog. Right. Uh, or, you know, maybe they don't have it. Maybe this wins the game because they didn't have the Ulamog. But they, you know, if they drew the other side of their deck, Tron has the Ulamog, the the Court of Call deck plays a fourth land and casts Collected Company. Like... Like there just always seems to be the side B of the record that could be the one that they're they're playing at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah, it doesn't stop like the O Stone. It doesn't stop Walking Blissa, which, in my experience, with a humans player, like tends to be the way that Tron beats you is they wrath the board, and then they set up a Walking Blissa. You can never punch through because yeah, your guys absolutely. aren't big enough anymore. Yeah, sure. So maybe just like has weird, very specific applications in very old formats, right? But. I mean, like, what blue-white hate bears deck is playable in Legacy, so... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think the other question for me is, I wonder if she does enough. Like, she may not be, like, great at anything, but could she do enough that warrants her in a sideboard slot over Teague? And that's... I don't have the answer to that, but I would say, like, maybe she could do enough. Not to be great, but just enough that, like, human is a relevant archetype enough. And I... So, I mean... Ultimately, to me, this is a, like, yes, it's an interesting card. It could find some slots somewhere, but, like, cool your jets a little bit, <laughs> yeah. basically. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do think that this definitely goes into the category of cards that could be playable in humans. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now, as, you know, modern exists and just the cards that are seeing a lot of play right now, 
I, I don't think that this card's high impact enough. That doesn't mean that some day down the line where right. we can look back at this card and be like, this card is broken right now because everybody's doing, you know, whatever. Right. Blank, the next big thing or whatever. So definitely something to keep in mind. But uh, as Modern exists right now, I think that Chris's example of the fact that even against the scenarios where it's good, if they have, you know, the other part of their deck, then, then it does nothing, then... We would be remiss if we didn't mention that uh, Lavinia and Spell Queller is a combo that people were very into. Very, very into. Yeah, oh, true. that's, true, that's true. not nothing. They, yeah. You cannot cast... Well, you can cast the the card that Spell Queller quelled. It just gets countered by Lavinia. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. that's how it works. It, it doesn't say you can't cast it. I, right. I guess I didn't read that closely. I mean, they can't cast it if it's a non-creature spell with more mana. But like ultimately, whatever is under the spell queller can't get cast because they're they're casting it without paying its mana cost. So yeah, that is a sweet combo. Right. Um, a lot of strange rules interactions with this card. If there's a Thalia in play, all of a sudden some cards become castle and otherwise they weren't. <laughs> um, and decks that play this card are also going to be playing Thalia most a lot of the time. Um, right, and then they so can cast their Force of Will. Right, and stuff. exactly. So it's this weird, like you know, it's got synergy with Spellfeller, but disenergy with Thalia. Oh, yeah, it's I don't know. Um, one other super weird thing is so all right. So picture this scenario: uh, your opponent has five creatures in play, including Alanoir Elves. Okay, and they cast Venerated Loxodon by tapping all five of their creatures. Okay, Did how many? They, how many... Okay, keep going. So what do you do? Oh, whenever so, whenever an opponent casts a spell, if no mana was spent to cast it, counter that spell. So my... How are we defining mana in that context? Right, so we don't know if that Llanowar Elves was convoking or paying mana for the spell. And if I control the Lavinia... Oh, weird. And I look at my opponent and say, oh, are you convoking or are you paying mana? They're going to think about it for a second and they're going to look at my Lavinia and they're going to go, <laughs> oh, I'm I'm paying a mana. Oh, of course, yeah. But since this is a triggered ability, if they uh, tap their tap their five creatures and uh, play the Loxodon, and I go, um, okay, and let it resolve to see if they're putting counters on, if they put the counter on the elf, then it's too late, and I've missed my trigger. So How complicated. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's, I feel like that's something that's not really ever going to come up in paper no. magic. But <laughs> a lot of people who are casting Venerated Loxodon on Magic Online are going to be very sad sometimes. <laughs> yeah, <it's> true. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh no, I didn't do it right. <laughs> so, I mean, really but want that, that, counter. that just yeah, yeah. creates like a very weird possible interaction in paper play. Mm-hmm. You know, if I am aware that my opponent has a Lavinia in play, I'm certainly paying the mana there, but yeah. uh, I just don't know how that's going to work out in real life. But anyways, one weird thing. Um, it, that is weird. I would say though, in standard, I expect to see Lavinia to see even less play than she does in yes. like non-rotating formats. Oh yeah, absolutely I, for sure. She she keeps you from casting stuff off of omniscience in standard. So you know, ooh yeah, omniscience decks are everywhere. These days. <laughs> right. Sorry, the yeah. poor omniscience decks just never quite get to happen. Yeah, um, we got another weird hate bear. I don't know if this one counts as a hate bear, but this is uh, Tithe Taker, a one in a white for a two-one human soldier. During your turn, spells your opponent's cast cost one more to cast, and abilities your opponent's activate cost one more to activate unless they're mana abilities, and it's got the Orzhov ability, which is afterlife one, 
When yep. this dies, you get a 1-1 white and black spirit creature token. So is this a spirit's card or is this a human's card? What do we, what uh, neither. Do we <laughs> oh, no. Pretty, pretty strongly neither, in, in my opinion. <laughs> this card is not much stronger than a 2-1 for 2 that dies into a 1-1 spirit. So Martyr of Dusk, basically. Yeah, this card is, is essentially a, a glorified Martyr of Dusk. Um, the restriction on doing things on one turn or another you know it, it in order for this to be effective in the way that i would want it to be effective in modern it would have to be flipped it would have to be only during your opponent's turn does this effect matter right yep and because, then this card is like pretty gross yeah because oh it's of just course more it would be insane in that context <laughs> yeah. for sure but in you know it'd be like a human uh, uh what's his name the artifacts um five three oh in uh, yeah lodestone golem whatever whatever golem that yeah is. yeah it'd be a lodestone golem. oh yeah that would be that'd be crazy Switch. absolutely no thank you <laughs> yeah so right so yeah it would, it would definitely be nuts there but i i just can't really imagine that many scenarios where your opponent wants to only do something on your turn and it's not completely crippling for them to do it on their turn like so okay what are we talking about counter spells that's one of the things that this is going to be good at Chemistry. Chemistry. Yeah. yeah, so so the, the instant speed stuff w- that requires holding up mana on the opponent's turn, and I think that is pretty much exclusively counter spells are going to be affected by this, but not much else. So so potentially this card's you play in standard mm-hmm. for a you know an anti an anti counter spell tech. Outside of that context, I you know, I don't think that this card is going to be playable. I mean, I think it is more of a standard level main deckable white weenie two drop. Yeah. You know, against something like Jeskai Control, it leaves you a body after a sweeper. Right. It makes Settle the Wreckage and Chemister's Insight that much more awkward. Yeah. Problem is that the direction that the Jeskai decks have taken is to be more tap out controlish, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. really focusing on Niv Mizzet. In which case, you want your threats to hit as hard as possible. And this one, if they can just say, all right, I'm going to keep taking two until I cast my Nivmizit, like casting this instead of a Danto Vanguard on turn two is a pretty big downgrade. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So it definitely seems like reasonable standard power level. If the format goes into a place where this is what you want, could be fine, but it's not an insane card by any means. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Next, we got an old favorite in Mortify. One black white for an instant destroy target creature or enchantment. Yeah, I mean this card is strong. It's an instant. Yep. It's destroy target creature or something else is always I think just great. Uh on a on a three mana instant speed card in you know, in a standard context. Yeah. Especially because a lot of white removal is enchantment based. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in some, you know, controlish mirrors. Uh, especially like with Ixalan's Binding, like being able to kill the Ixalan's Binding on an important kind of thing is very is is really good. Like if I play a treasure map and the Ixalan's Binding it, like I probably have three more treasure maps in my deck, so that's <laughs> yeah. a problem. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, so this is a, a good, you know, for whatever black-white decks exist, and I'm sure more will exist once we have Godless Shrine and Orzhov Gold cards. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think this will be a role player for sure. Absolutely. Next up is a card that I guess we should talk about the mechanic of more than anything else. So so this one is Light Up the Stage, and it has the new... What is it? Is it the Rakdos mechanic? Yeah, yeah. So it's called uh, Spectacle. Um, it's yep. essentially an alternative mana cost that you can cast the spell for under certain conditions, right? 
it's it's always as long as your opponent has lost life this turn, you uh, can yeah. pay the spectacle cost. Yeah. Okay. Right. So yeah. So if they've lost life, you can yeah. you can play it for cheaper. And this this card in particular is interesting. So it normally costs three mana, but it has spectacle for one. So if your opponent's taken damage, you can you spend just a red mana on it. It says exile the top two cards of your library until the end of your turn. You can play those cards. Whoa! Until the end of your next turn. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Okay. So good, I, good catch. I think that's actually surprisingly huge here. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever you hit them, and you have a spare red mana, yeah. you cast this, and then you have like a full two turn cycle to cast those cards. And if it's you, know, you don't even need to hit them. Right. Right. You can just burn you can them. just burn. That's yeah. Enough. Exactly. Like you can, and I mean like. So that black red burn deck is really bad because it plays Cinder Barons and it plays Sword Point Diplomacy. <laughs> yeah, right. But there's burn spells in standard, and yeah. there's oh, yeah. like risk factor in standard, mm-hmm. and this sort of card seems very nuts in a deck like that. Rakdos burn coming up. Yeah, <laughs> it very easily could be a, a, a new contender in standard. Um, I I honestly really like this card. I'm going to be building around it too much probably. great it mostly to me reads like in the deck that's built around it this is one mana draw two cards yeah Uh, and if you're a burn deck you want that it's just thought cast like that's great yeah i mean right for sure it seems perfect for a burn deck honestly it also um play those cards means i believe that you can play lands um which is something that like chandra couldn't do when she was standard and just like just ensuring that you hit another land drop maybe like a black red more mid-rangey style deck that might be enough too. Just to be like, okay, cool. I'm gonna make my land drop next turn. I can, you know, do this. I can use my resources differently now because I know I'm gonna make my land drops next turn. Like that can yep. matter a lot. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and and it that and this, even if you reveal two lands, like you get two turns to play the lands. So that's pretty cool. Yep. And it may not be just in Rakdos. It could be in Jund too. Because now that we're gonna have a full plethora of <laughs> dual lands, that this might be an integral part to. Oh, who knows? A Jeskai aggressive right. tempo deck. Yeah. It does, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think just like that. That cost is so cheap, and as long as you can consistently play this for one mana, um, whether that's just like having a bunch of burn spells in your deck, having chain whirlers, having cheap evasive creatures, like yep. that's that's a pretty big payoff. So I'm I'm down for this card. One chain whirler starts a spectrum. Yeah, true. Red, 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 red. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. but but that's like that's cool like you can actually pull that off like i mean if especially if we are mono red that's a fine turn four and then turn five you play those cards that you revealed off yep. a spectacle yeah so decent next card has a very similar same mechanic and similar sort of concept to it this is rick's Mahdi reveler uh one in a red for a two two human shaman uh i think we are not going to emphasize the human part of this card too much yeah <laughs> uh spectacle of two a black and a red so we're this one is a more expensive spectacle cost uh that is regular cost when rick's mighty reveler enters the battlefield discard a card then draw a card if rick's mighty reveler's spectacle spectacle cost was paid instead discard your hand then draw three cards so it becomes a bedlam reveler if you spectacle it yeah honestly that seems great uh i mean it's a it's a fine early body that does come in with a, a, a reasonable effect of, of rummaging. You know, 2-2 two, two for 2 that rummages when it comes into play seems pretty good, honestly. And it's a little better than rummaging because if your hand's empty, you just get the card. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, right, which, sure. which has been kind of a thing that I've hoped that they would turn rummaging in to like give red some upside rummaging there. Rummaging does need the help to be a relevant mechanic, for yeah. sure. But this, yeah, this does... I, I think it's a pretty 
pretty reasonable early game. You know, like that 2-2 body, like we've really moved past 2-2 bodies being particularly relevant, even in standard. Yeah, um, it needs the help to be playable. Yeah. I do like how it works with Experimental Frenzy, too. Like, it can help you dig through pockets um, where, like, you can, like, pull that, you know, second land off the top, whatever. So I, I do like that it can also help you in that context, too. Like, just little edge cases with this card I'm really excited to play with. Like, you, yeah, you'd cast it off the top of your library, and then you would, like, it, it could sort of help, like, if you have a lot of instants in your deck, because, like, you cast it, reveal it, like, look at the top card, cast any instants that are on top, and then you get the yep. you get to draw whatever like land or like bad sorcery speed thing you reveal um so so if, if we're like a burn deck with a lot of instant speed burn yeah. then that that makes sense with frenzy so yeah like the the rectos burn deck is more about inevitability than like ultra like being ultra speedy so being able to draw cards with one of your damage sources seems like something that it might be interested in but i'm not like falling over myself to play this card the way that i am with light up the stage mm-hmm. For sure. And then last, probably want to spend too much time on this, but this is Rakdos Firewheeler. It's this... definitely not a crackling drake. It's not a crackling. It's a human rogue. It's a human. human. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's not a crackling drake. Yeah, this I mean, this card certainly isn't gonna see play past limited, I wouldn't suspect, yep. really. But it is the Rakdos black, black, red, red uncommon that we <laughs> that we see. Um and a bunch of those have seen play. So Oh yeah, for sure. Um, it's yeah, it's a so it's a four mana four three uh, for red red uh, black black. Uh, when Rakdos Firewheeler enters the battlefield, it deals two damage to target opponent and two damage to up to one target creature or planeswalker. I mean, I can see scenarios even in constructed where like this card could be great. I mean, four three is not the most impressive body for four mana. I think where I struggle with it in standard is. It's a four drop, and by the time four drops are coming out, that two yeah. damage matters a yeah. lot less. Whereas, like in limited, you know, you're going to have lots of draft chaff and you know C plus cards that you're still playing, so that it'll have more targets to be effective, and is more of a, a temp, like swinging yeah. tempo piece. Whereas in modern, or sorry, in you know standard, like that turn four, it's like, yeah, what are you, are you doing? Like two damage with the fairy, or right. or what? Yeah, and I guess I'm if we picture like. Like uh, the the 8-Drakes deck. When my opponent taps 4 mana, including 2 black on their turn, I'm thinking like, alright, well, you know, I'm getting uh, Ravenous Jupacabrid here, and that sucks. If yeah. my opponent plays this, then I'm <laughs> so happy. Like, I just untap and kill them, pretty much. So, <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, yeah, that definitely, it's probably just mostly a liability in a lot of the matchups in Standard. Yeah, I think it will be a very strong card in, in a limited context. Sure. Um, because of the things that um, Matt mentioned where it's going to be able to clean up some of like that, you know, the, the two drop chaff that everybody ends up with there in the, their deck. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, beyond that two damage to a creature, not, not enormously relevant. Yeah. I don't think. Yeah. Well, I've been able to like attack a previous turn or earlier in the turn, play this, my second main phase, clear out that blocker that I need to push through. I really want it to be good. And I love that it enables spectacle on its own. Like that feels like a really cool, piece of the Rakdos mechanic like on the Rakdos Uncommon. Um, I appreciate oh, yeah, that from a design true. standpoint. It's got to be a cheap spectacle card though because this card costs black, black, red, red. That's <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> true. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, I'm definitely going to be on the lookout for those uh, cards that 
just kind of incidentally enable that mechanic. I think that's going to be something to look for uh, just in general in this new set. Is that like, are there enough like cheap recursive deal your opponent one damage elements that that you can have as an engine source of your deck? Might be something to to look into. For yeah, sure. electrostatic field. But uh, yeah, honestly, I mean, you know, yeah. there, there's definitely uh, no, it's for real. Yeah, I mean, for sure. that black red burn deck has definitely played some some iterations play that field, and it has right. killed me once or twice. So it's certainly, I have lost that deck yeah. at least once or twice. Yeah. What's the what's the good version of that card? The O three the Thermo Alchemist. Thermo, yeah, the one in UMA. Alchemist. That's yeah. like the best, like the best card in UMA. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Honestly. Oh yeah. But um, that Thermo Alchemist dunked on Jundalirian, which was one of my favorite decks. So I have a deep passion. <laughs> oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Thermo Alchemist was always very, very strong in kind of all of the contexts that I saw play in. But uh, but yeah, yeah. This this O four isn't quite that. Maybe but... Blue Red Drakes. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll get a reprint of Thermo Alchemist. And, you know, cross my fingers. Be sweet. I'd be into it. I'd give it a shot. Okay, so our Patreon question of the week this time is a little bit different. This one is going to be mostly focused towards you, Matt. So uh, this one comes from Jay, and he asks, Have you thought about how to deal with potential bias from non-random response? Error bars or upper slash lower bounds on your estimates? And uh, he also asks, what is the percentage response you feel comfortable making inferences from? Um, so, I mean, maybe just take those one at a time, but are, are these things you've been thinking about? Yeah, I think there is, of course, like a bias. Like one of the first things that we sort of thought about and struggled with was uh, for Atlanta is when we're pulling the top 32 from a um, from a GP. Uh, if you look at GP Portland, like our results say, is it Phoenix is a great deck? And if you look at the top 16, which is a reasonable part of our sample, um, our data uh, there's four Is It Drake decks in that top 16. So, yes, of course, we're, our data is going to say that Is It Phoenix is a great deck when there's four of them in our data pool. Um, so there is that um, potential bias there. I think that we can sort of... Unfortunately, I think the only way to really deal with that is to build more data. Um, you know, Joan, when he does his analysis, like does weight some of those... Um, matchup percentages based on how many of those matchups we saw so we can very definitively say that uh tron does very well against bant spirits because we have 28 matches of data to pull from mm-hmm. we can say that less confidently about say dredge beating on blue red phoenix because we only have four matches to pull from um so really that's just is going to be you know building stuff over time and building longitudinal and uh robust data to pull from in the future so like I think a long-term hopeful project would be to have some kind of Magic the Gathering arena tracker so that people can, you know, easily deliver their results to us as they're playing arena casually on their computer. And we can say, okay, now we have a data set of 10,000 games uh, in a best of three format, 10,000 games that will give us a much better um, confirmation about that. And like one of the things that Vicious and Nika does very well too, is they pull from a variety of player skill ranges so like they track mm. um, deck performance at the you know rank one to five at the legendary at five to ten. So you can kind of see that like some decks perform very well in this kind of like closed legendary meta, and some decks do better for laddering. So like if you're playing Hearthstone, Odd Paladin is a great ladder deck. 
but it may not be what you want to play once you get into legendary and you face like a lot of really great players that are trying different things and um, jockeying differently for uh, ladder rank. So I, I guess what you're saying is kind of like, and not not to put words in your mouth or anything, but uh, yeah. you know, there's just types of information and conclusions we'd like to get to, but we just don't have anywhere near the data that that we that we would need to get there and like that's kind of the problem is like there's this like information out there that we're grasping at and hoping for and and it's just like completely inaccessible with what what we have access to right now yeah like if i had access to wizards like moto data and just like dig through there like yeah i could write some really sweet content about (laughs) what that looks like but we don't have that yet so and you know we're not going to kind of dig into where other people run into issues like scraping bot data we want to have this, you know, be user driven. And so like, we're accountable to the people that are, you know, that are using our data at the end of the day. And that we're not, you know, adding any additional load to wizards work in any yeah. capacity, really. And do we think that there is, um, going back to like the potential biases thing, do we think that there's any biases like in the people who choose to report? Do we think it's like the more engaged spikes and, and maybe like, Absolutely. I wonder yeah. if, people who have good tournaments are more likely to report their data to you guys than people who had a bad tournament. <laughs> yeah, no, those are definitely like key factors. And so, you know, like I said earlier, this is not authoritative. And like whenever I'm writing an article based on our data, it's me putting, making sense of the data. Like the data just says on the page, Dredge, bleeds, Dredge beats Blue Red Phoenix. That doesn't tell us anything about the matchups. It doesn't tell us anything about the Blue Red Phoenix sideboards. It doesn't tell us about the way the game's played out. And, like, we can't rely on those things to definitively say that Dredge will always beat Blue Red Phoenix because that's just not how magic works. So, um, yeah, there's absolutely bias there. And, uh, you know, we don't want to say that there isn't. But, and so, like, whenever you read one of our articles, like, please take it with a grain of salt. Know that this is, again, not authoritative. This isn't, you know, you can, you can plug in all these matchup percentages and be like, okay, so if I just play Tron, like, I'm going to play these things and I'll win the tournament. You don't have like, we're not entitled to that. And like, no matter what data we studied, um, it doesn't grant you uh, a magic key to solving the metagame format. But what it will hopefully give you is an opportunity to understand what are the worst matchups for me? What are things I need to be prepared for? What should my sideboard look like? Because I should anticipate people adopting these decks. Um, What decks are doing well right now and what decks you know, might be something to consider as a good deck that I might enjoy playing that will help me do better. So cool. Yeah. Well, hopefully we keep like ramping up the data that you guys do have access to because I'm excited to see what you guys come up with. Yeah. And thank you so much. Like this being on this podcast is a great opportunity. I'm really grateful for it. And um the help is awesome. So thank yeah, you so of much course. For the I, I mean I hope it helps, but but thank you so much for for coming and hanging out with us. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Anytime. Cool. Um, all right. Well, that should probably do it for us for this week. I think so. Awesome. Um, so if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter. I'm tweeting from at MTG underscore Grindcast. Collins is also on Twitter. At Collins Mullen. And uh, Matt's, the, the Mox Insights project is tweeting from at Mox Insights. That's correct? Yep. Yep. You can follow me at a very big bear on Twitter. Um, so yeah. Excellent. Too. See, I... I don't know why, but I always read it as Avery Big Bear. Yeah, uh, that's fine. And that's clearly not what it is. <laughs> 
Anyways, yeah. So so follow Mox Insights. Um, you can also find our stuff at mtggrindcast.com. You can sign up for the Patreon there. Uh, didn't do this at the beginning of the show, but thank you so much to our newest patrons, Ellison and one Michael Braverman. Um, Mike. Welcome uh, to the club. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, you can find links to our Patreon on our website or at patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. Uh, on our website, you can also find links to Collins' one-on-one coaching services if you're interested in that. Yes, listen to that. Other than that, thank you guys so much for listening, um, and have a great week. Peace. This is where the music plays. Yes, this is when it plays.